Have you ever sat in the cheap seats? The cheap seats, if you don't know what that is, is the the ticket for the event that is the absolutely lowest price ticket that you could possibly get. It's the seat that maybe nobody else wanted, but it was the seat that you could afford. Reportedly right now in the NBA, the cheapest seat in professional basketball, according to one source, a a one-game ticket through the official box office, the cheapest place would be for the Detroit Pistons. And you would pay $60 for that ticket. Now, take that $60 and let's just rewind a little bit. In 1975, one of the best seats at a Detroit Piston Games would cost you $5. Now, I don't know if I use my abacus right or not, but I'm pretty sure we're looking at stubs and looking at schedules. It is possible that in 1975, you could have bought season tickets for all 82 games for the cheap seats for the same price that you would pay today just for one seat to one game. Man, how things have changed. The cheap seats are also known as the nosebleed section. The idea is that you are so high up and so far away from any activity at the event that the air pressure changes up there and you will probably get a nosebleed. Now, it has been suggested that the first time the nosebleed section occurred in popular culture and American language It was on Happy Days when Fonzie and Richie were in the nosebleed section at the Johnny Fish and the Fins concert. Now, I can't verify that that's true, but it might be. I don't know. So we'll just see. Sorry, I couldn't resist. When I was in college, I, along with five buddies, went to an Atlanta Hawks basketball game in what was the old Omni Arena. Needless to say, all of us had nosebleeds that night because we were, I think, two rows from the very, very last row. We were way, way up there. Uh, We did not have the best seats in the house. In fact, for a little while there, it looked like we were watching the Houston Nats and the Atlanta Ants because we could barely see who those guys were down there. Incidentally, though, the fun of that night was we met a man who will forever be known to us as Houston, Texas Baby. He worked for the Houston Sanitation Department, and he's the most interesting person I think I've ever met in my life. But that's a whole other story you can ask me later. We had the cheap seats that night, but we also had a blast. We were not in the middle of the action right there on the floor, but we were at least in the building where all the action was happening. It was a really, really fun night. Here's the interesting thing about Christianity. There are no cheap seats. God did not design his arena with cheap seats. He only has deep seats. That's all he has. So what are deep seats? Well, King David is going to help us answer that question. Look with me at Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Some Bibles use the word statutes here instead of precepts. When you hear the word statute or precept, it kind of sounds like a law. I came across some laws in my reading this week that I had never heard of before. There is the Lorenz's Law of Mechanical Repair. After your hands become covered with grease, your nose will begin to itch. I don't know if that's really a law or not, but I'm pretty sure that happens every now and then. There's also Cole's Law. That's legally engaging in the process of thinly slicing cabbage. I decided to let you wait for it. 
It's not really a law either, but it's mildly funny. And if you didn't get it, ask somebody at lunch. It'll be okay. Then there is Section 58, 17, 3400 of the South Carolina Code of Laws that says this. Any railroad company shall be liable for damages for any horse frightened as a result of the violation of the provisions of this section by any of its employees. That one really is a law. It's really on the book, supposedly. Don't think it's been removed. So Thomas the Tank Engine needs to be really careful if he's choo-chooing through our state because if he scares a horse, he might spend the night in the slammer. That's a real law on the books. The thing about a law is it's different than a statute or a precept. See, we hear law and, and we hear something that has to be obeyed. A precept and a statute, it's a little bit different. They are a principle, a doctrine, a guideline. When we look at this word in the Bible, we, we see this is God encouraging us in a direction, giving some authority, but, but not in a specific law. A precept is just a little bit different. Last week, I made some gingerbread brownies, and the recipe called for evaporated milk. Well, we didn't have any evaporated milk, so I had to find an ingredient substitute for evaporated milk. And every time I need an ingredient substitute for anything that I'm making, I always pull out my Bible and turn to the book of Titus, of course, because every recipe ingredient substitution is always in the book of Titus, right? No, it's not. You see, the Bible is not designed to give us a specific detailed answer for every single thing that happens in life. That's, that's not how God's Word works. But the Bible is a book that gives us principles and precepts and guidelines for every ultimate reality in life, the things that are most important. Or maybe put it another way, God has an order for how the natural world and the supernatural world work. It's a, an order that he put together. And his precepts and his statutes, they are the kind of principles and guidelines that apply to all of the natural and the supernatural, and they apply all the time. Your precept for a good pulled pork sandwich may involve a mustard-based sauce. Your cousin's precept for a good pulled pork sandwich might involve a tomato-based sauce. Your neighbor may have a precept that involves a vinegar-based sauce, but all of you have a precept that involves a pig for your sandwich. And God has the original patent on the precept for the pig, and so all of you would be dependent on God. See, the nature of God's precepts are they are ultimate. They are final. The, the principles and the guidelines, the doctrines that God has set up are the, the final. They're the foundational. They're the ones that we build life on. But David doesn't just say they are ultimate. What does he say? He says they are right. Anybody live in a family where mom or dad or grandpa or grandpa or aunt or uncle, somebody is always right all the time and they're never wrong about anything? I see those smiles. I know we all have one in our family. Well, bless their hearts, there's a problem because you see mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and your aunt and your uncle and you and I and every other person, past, present, and future, is wrong every now and then. We don't always get it right. You see, our precepts are not always right. Our principles are not always right. Our opinions are not always right. But see, God isn't like us. 
This is what the psalmist said, Psalm 33. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God said jump and the universe said how high. The universe doesn't do that for anybody else. Doesn't do it for me, doesn't do it for you. Doesn't do it for your mom, your dad, your grandpa, your grandpa. The universe does not do that for anybody else. God is alone in who he is. God's precepts are not random opinions. God's precepts are not based on things like, well, it was good enough for me when I was growing up, so it's good enough for you, and it's how I'm going to raise you. That's not how God precepts work. His precepts are full of pure truth and pure wisdom and pure love. There is absolutely nothing like God's precepts, and he has chosen to put his precepts in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is an amazing book because it is the most complete and trustworthy and consistent and reliable and right guide that we have for how we're supposed to do life. Now, statements like that are a little interesting out in our day and age. See somebody like Mike Skeptic or Louis Agnostic or Edna Atheist, they may hear something like, the Bible, reliable? Are you crazy? The Bible, right? Are you crazy? That old, ancient train wreck of a book being right? No, it's always wrong, they would say. They would say, that's a book full of homophobic and chauvinistic and archaic language that should never, ever, ever be used. In fact, it's full of inconsistencies, too. It contradicts itself all the time. Well, before we try to respond to some of those objections, let me just make note of what we said last week. This is what Jesus said. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. See, the only way that Mike Skeptic or Louis Agnostic or Edna Atheist or you or I or anybody else in the world, the only way that we will ever understand the precepts of God is through the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, we can't will ourselves to embrace God's precepts. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to light up God's truth, help us to see it and know it and understand it and embrace it. We are dependent on His Spirit. Now, with that in mind, I'm about to read something that will not answer every single objection out there that people have, but I do think it's some of the most helpful information I've ever read on opposition to the Bible. Tim Keller writes, Once you grant the main premise of the Bible about the surpassing significance of Christ and his salvation, then all the various parts of the Bible make sense. However, if you reject the idea of Christ as Son of God and Savior, then, of course, the Bible is at best a mishmash containing some inspiration and wisdom, but most of it would have to be rejected as foolish or erroneous. And so we ask, so where does this leave us? Well, there are only two possibilities. If Christ is God, then this way of reading the Bible makes sense. The other possibility is that you reject Christianity's basic thesis. You don't believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, and then the Bible is no sure guide for you about much of anything. Powerful picture here. Because, see, there's some good things in the Bible that Mike and Louie and Edna and, and others might agree with, some good principles that, that you can follow. But there may also be some, some bad things, they think, some things that are wrong, some things that you cannot follow. And the only way that you can cross the line from good or bad into right 
is through the person of Jesus Christ. There really is no other way for this to happen. That is exactly how God has designed this book. He's designed this book to help us see salvation in Jesus Christ, to see life in Jesus Christ, to see hope and joy in Jesus Christ. And once by the power of the Spirit through the gospel, once you cross over that line, something happens. Something that's hard to explain. Look at the next part of verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We are in a season right now where the word joy is all over the place. We have this truth here that the precepts of God will actually bring joy to your heart. We see joy in lights. We see joy in signs. We hear joy in songs. But what happens when the lights are taken down? What happens when the signs are taken down? What happens when every radio station in the universe is not playing Christmas carols 24 hours a day? Well, what happens then? You may be able to pull off some holly jolly Christmas, but you might have a miserable Groundhog's Day. You know? See, life isn't always perfect. Life isn't always great. What do you do then? You see, holidays are good, and, and vacation trips are good, and amusement parks are good, and sports, and good food, and shopping, and, and TV shows, and movies, fiction books, social media. There's lots of things that can have their place, but all of those things, their precepts by their nature are temporary. Even if they can help your heart in some emotional or spiritual way, they're kind of like Pop Rocks candy or dissolving allergy tablets. You know, after just a little while, the crackle goes away and they disintegrate. God's precepts are different. Nathaniel Hardy wrote this, those things may comfort against outward trouble, but not against inward fears. They may rejoice the mind, but they cannot quiet the conscience. They may kindle some flashy sparkles of joy, but they cannot warm the soul with a lasting fire of solid consolations. He said that in the 1600s. He, he was writing about books that weren't the Bible because there was no Facebook back then. You know, there were just, just books. And he was writing about how those books, ah, they may have their place, but they aren't the ultimate truth for your soul. Think about how much media and entertainment we have today. Think of all the different outlets we have for our minds and our eyes. And then think about the millions of dollars that have been spent over the last few days on items that maybe six months to a year from now will be outdated or they'll be handed off to the thrift store or they might even be taken to the landfill. Think of all that we have and all the things that we do, and then let's listen to Nate Hardy one more time. Those may comfort against outward trouble, but not against inward fears. They may rejoice the mind, but cannot quiet the conscience. They may kindle some flashy sparkles of joy, but they cannot warm the soul with a lasting fire of solid consolations. You see, the people and the places and the things of this world, they cannot comfort and quiet and warm. Why? Because by their very nature, generally speaking, they cannot bring joy, lasting joy, to your heart. What is your heart? Well, David's not writing about the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. He's talking about your inner person, who you 
really are, the place where your desires and your attitudes live, that, that fingerprint of your soul. This is who you really are. The Hebrew understanding of the word heart goes something like this. The deepest seat of a person's emotions and decisions and mind and will. Do you hear that part? The deepest seat. The deep seats. You see, God did not design life with Christ with cheap seats. He designed life with Christ with deep seats. Those are the only kind of seats there are. That means that these precepts of the Lord that David was writing about, when he wrote them down a thousand years later, when Mary and Joseph couldn't find any room at the end, he was writing about precepts that find their ultimate fulfillment in this baby in that manger. See, the ultimate fulfillment of the precepts of the Lord are in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. This is where reality comes. Reality always comes back to Jesus. And the reason why is because Jesus comforts inward fears. Jesus can quiet your conscience. And Jesus can warm your soul with a fire that lasts forever and ever and ever. That's who he is. Jesus was talking to his friends one day about his death and his resurrection. This is what he said to them. John 16, verse 22. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Tattoo that last part on your brain. No one will take your joy away from you. Now, you may think that's a really nice Bible verse for Sunday morning. Good stuff. I like it on Sunday, but you know what? It's not really true because my joy gets taken away all the time. My mom and dad take away my joy. My wife takes away my joy. My husband takes away my joy. My kids take away my joy. My grandkids take away my joy. Work takes away my joy. My job takes away my joy. School takes away my joy. The state of our country and the world takes away my joy. If that's true, then I have a very uncomfortable question for you. Where is your joy. Because if your joy can be taken away like that, then undoubtedly your joy is not in Jesus. Because of what Jesus said, if your joy is taken away like that, then you're, you're kind of making Jesus a liar, right? Because Jesus said, if you've got my joy, my joy cannot be taken away. There's, there's nothing that can take my joy away from you. So if your joy can be taken away by all those people, then Maybe you don't have joy in Christ. Maybe you don't really know Jesus. Now, we're talking about joy, not happiness. Let me clarify, okay? Happiness comes and goes like the waves at the ocean. But joy is a mountain that never moves. Happiness moves all the time because life is hard. Your taxes may increase. The economy may flounder. Things may get really hard at school and really hard at work. You may have health problems that pop up. Your car may break down. You may not have enough money for Christmas presents. People may let you down. People will disappoint you. People will hurt you. People will abandon you. People will die. And none of those things make us happy. Happiness comes and goes. Joy does not Joy in Jesus is something that lasts in the middle of your worst moment. 
Joy in Jesus is there. It exists. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. When everything else around you is falling apart, when your life is collapsing, this is the very nature of what it means to be saved. If anyone told you that being saved was joining the church and getting baptized and feeling good, they lied. Because salvation in Jesus Christ is hope for the awful. Salvation in Jesus Christ is hope for the worst moment with your spouse and the worst moment with your kids and the worst moment even at the moment that you breathe your last. Salvation in Jesus has joy. It is what it is. It's not a cheap seat. It's a deep seat. I love how the Bible talks to us because it, it keeps pulling us back to that. Listen, Facebook will not pull you to that. Twitter will not pull you to that. The news will not pull you to that. The radio will not pull you to that. There is nothing that will pull you to joy in Christ like God's word. It's why David's writing about it. That's why he's talking about the precepts. This is how Jesus said it to his friends. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, what Jesus says is the, the worst thing that can happen to you in your life is not something that will happen to your family. The worst thing that can happen to you is not what will happen to your bank account. It's not what will happen to your health. It's not what will happen to your job or your career or your education. The worst thing that can happen to any person is when something bad happens to a person's soul. That's the worst thing that can ever happen. However, if your soul has been captured with the gospel, if you are trusting in and relying on and, and believing and clinging to Jesus as your way and your truth in your life, Jesus says something to you this morning. And it's very clear, and it's never changed, and it will never change. And what he says to you is this. No one can take away your joy. No person, no diagnosis, no news report, no Facebook post, no text, no phone call, nothing. There's absolutely nothing that can take away joy in Christ. That's what joy in Christ is. The precepts of the Lord keep drawing the eyes of our hearts back to that truth. And how does it do that? Look at the next part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure. So he's using a, a different word, but it's still the same conversation. Still talking about God's truth. But a commandment's different than a precept, right? It's, it's not a principle. It's not a guideline. It's an actual authoritative law. It's, it's something that you're supposed to do. It's an instruction with authority. As we noted earlier, there are people who believe that the Bible is inconsistent, that it's full of offensive things, that it can't be trusted, that it's something they would object to. But you know, there's also people that will ignore the Bible. They may not reject the Bible, but they'll ignore the Bible. And the reason they ignore the Bible is because they are obsessed with the questions of life. Should I date someone? Who should I date? Should I get married? Who should I marry? What kind of career should I have? Should I go to college? Should I not go to college? What's God's will for my life? Why doesn't he just give me a sign? Here's the thing. God did give you a sign. He gave you a commandment. And it's a commandment that's pure. The word pure here means clear. 
So here's the the clear commandment of God. Yes, you can chase after all of the objectional material. You can reject God's truth and say, well, it's inconsistent or I don't like it or it's it's not updated, it's outdated. It doesn't fit with this day and age. Or you can ignore God's word and obsess over all the questions of life. But God's commandment is clear. It's not confusing. It's not hard to understand. And it goes something like this. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm kind of thankful I don't have to figure out what that means. God's pretty clear. But it's not just that he's clear with this command. He actually wants us to do something with this command. So what does he want us to do with it? Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay. That all sounds nice and religious. It sounds clear. I'm supposed to only have God. I'm supposed to only love him. But hey, I'm married. I got kids. I got grandkids. I got a job. I I have family. I have friends. I I have this life. I can't just stay in the sanctuary all the time and, and hang out and just love God with all my heart. So does it have any place in your life? Well, this is how Jesus said it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. In other words, get that first, because if you don't, you're going to be off track. And then Jesus says this. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't mean to oversimplify this, but I know God's will for your life. God's will for your life is to love and follow Jesus. I know that sounds too simple. I know that sounds hokey. I know that's easier said than done. I get all of those things. But you can peel back any page of the Bible. You can go to the farthest corner of the world trying to find yourself on top of a mountain. And at the end of the day, the ultimate reality of life is always found in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Are those questions in life hard? Yeah, they're hard. Sometimes we don't know what job to take. We don't know what college to go to. We're not sure if we should date this person. We're not sure if we should marry this person. Those things are all out there. They're real questions. We don't ignore them. And sometimes they're very difficult questions. But we do not worship those questions. See, the choir didn't sing a song this morning that says, we come to worship who we're going to marry. We come to worship where we're going to go to college. I mean, that sounds funny, right? But it's true. It's what we do. If we're we're real with ourselves on Tuesday afternoon when we're freaking out about something, we're worshiping that question. Because for some reason in that moment, God, there's no way God can be God over this. And we all do it in some way, shape, or form. But if we would focus on loving and following Christ, here's what happens. God takes all of those precepts throughout the whole Bible, and he helps us make decisions. It, It really is that simple. When we focus on loving and following Jesus, God takes all of these precepts in the Bible and he helps us make decisions. But let me give you an opposite warning to that. If you do not love Jesus and do not focus on following him, if you just come to church on Sundays, if you just come to youth group to go paintball, if you just wander into a Sunday school class or a Bible study every now and then, If you date whoever you want to date, knowing that that person doesn't love and follow Jesus, 
If you pick a college just because you think it's a place that will help you get more money later. If you marry someone that you know is not loving and following Jesus. If you choose a career that you know will be something that you'll be able to get more than give more. If your Christianity is nothing more than a rabbit's foot on your keychain in your truck. Then I will say this. No, don't expect God to always have your back and bless everything that you do. Because that's completely missing the pure, clear commandment. See, the commandment's designed to help you. The commandment's designed to pull you to God so that you will have the joy that you need, so that you'll be able to rejoice in the Lord. But if that doesn't describe you, if you are trying to love and follow Jesus, then I have some really, really, really great news for you. Look at the last part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This coming week, 14 years ago, Cindy Lee died. Cindy was 38 years old. Cindy was a tiny woman born in China, and Cindy was also deaf. The story of her life is that right after she was born, she was not wanted. So she was wrapped up in newspapers, and she was left on the doorstep of the home of a nun. By God's kind providence, a family from San Francisco found out about little Cindy, and they adopted her. And she grew up, she ended up in the deaf collegiate program at Cal State Northridge. And while she was there, the gospel captured her heart, and she was saved, and she began to love and follow Jesus Christ. She was a part of Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is the pastor. And just before she died, John MacArthur met with Cindy, and through the help of an interpreter, they had a conversation. Cindy wanted to ask him some things, and this is how he retells the story. Cindy had a whole bunch of questions, and they were all about heaven. She sort of thought maybe I had been there. <laughs> but she went through all this listing of questions about heaven. She was going on the vacation of her life, and she wanted me to sort of develop a brochure. Pictures of your mansion, the bedroom, you know, the scenery. And I did the best I could. But you know, the Bible says, eye hasn't seen, nor ear has heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of the man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So I'm limited to the scripture. So I just tried to tell her what the scripture was like. And then he said this, she was really anxious to go. She prepared not only her own heart, but everybody around her to enter into the joy of her Lord. The Holy Spirit took the precepts of the Lord and the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord and the command of the Lord about Jesus Christ through the gospel and rescued Cindy's life. She went from being abandoned in some newspaper to being accepted into the great news of the gospel. In other words, Cindy went from the doorstep to the deep seats. If I have any message for you as we enter into this season of joy, it is this. May God give our hearts and our minds and our souls the ability to see beyond December and in the middle of December and all the days that we have left on this earth 
that the best seats in the universe are his deep seats. They are the best seats ever and forever. Let's pray. Father, I just, I thank you for Cindy Lee. I thank you that still this day, nothing has ever taken her joy away. And I pray, God, that you would help us as we plan our vacations, as we plan our holiday trips. Help us to think more about the vacation of a lifetime, the vacation of eternity, the best place we will ever go forever and to ever and ever. And help us to live as people that think that way. Help us to live in this joy that Jesus, you died to give us. This was no white elephant present you gave to us. You died so that we might have joy. Help us live as people who believe and understand and love that that joy cannot be taken away. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.